Welcome to A Hard Look, the Administrative Law Review podcast from the Washington College of Law. We'll discuss how administrative law impacts your daily life, from regulatory actions by agencies and the litigation over them to the balance of power among branches of the government. This is A Hard Look. Hello, I'm your host, Rachel Soddy-Sachs, a third-year law student at the Washington College of Law. Today, we'll discuss the distinctions drawn between an inferior officer and an employee after Lucia, the considerations that go into that distinction, and the broader impacts that that decision's had. Today, we have with us Judge Scott Maravilla. He's an administrative judge at the Federal Aviation Administration, and he's also a member of the American Law Institute and is a prolific legal scholar that has been published with Tulane Law Journal and has also written for Prof's blog, the Faculty Lounge blog, and Law in the Multiverse. Now today we're here because he's written an article titled Private Judges Public Law, the Unconstitutionality of Binding Arbitration under the Administrative Dispute Resolution Act. Now that's forthcoming with the Ohio State Journal of Dispute Resolution. Today, Judge Maravia is only speaking in his own capacity. Welcome, Judge Maravia. Well, welcome. Uh, thank you, Rachel, for having me. And thank you to the editors of the Ministry of Law Review for letting me do this podcast. I'm really happy to be here. And thank you, Jason, for doing all the technical work to make sure that this gets done. Of course, we're looking forward to getting this started. Now, as I just stated, you do have an article that's coming out. Could you tell us a little bit about the background of why you decided to write this article? Well, this article I like to think of as a dare. So um, one time I'm having a conversation with some colleagues about ADR, Alternative Dispute Resolution, and ADR is primarily mediation in the federal government, but there are provisions under the ADRA, Administrative Dispute Resolution Act, for binding arbitration. And I was saying, uh, I don't know if this is uh, quite right. I don't know if this really passes constitutional muster. And they're very dismissive, like, oh, well, it's in the statute, and it's ADR, and we elect ADR, <laughs> and that's it. And so I thought to myself, well, I'll show them and went about doing my research, putting this together. And once um, Lucia versus Securities Exchange Commission was decided, I read it and said, okay, this is the touchdown that ices the game. I love it. So just to give a little bit of background for Lucia and what inspired this article, um, Lucia determined that ALJs and the SEC were inferior officers and therefore that their previous appointments uh, by the SEC were unconstitutional. Is that right? Yes. And the issue is the Appointments Clause of the Constitution, Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2. Okay. So that article states that the president shall nominate and by and with the advice and consent of the Senate shall appoint ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, judges of the Supreme Court and all other officers of the United States whose appointments are not herein otherwise provided for and which shall be established by law by the Congress may by awe vest the appointment of such inferior officers as they think proper in the president alone, in the courts of law, or in the heads of departments. And in Lucia, the Supreme Court gave, as you said, a very narrow holding. They struck down the appointment of SEC administrative law judges as not conforming with that clause. Mm -hmm. 
So I do want to get into the more broad implications, but even before we get there, uh, let's go ahead and discuss just pre-Lucia distinctions between an inferior officer and an employee and just um, an officer. So before Lucia even happened, who could generally be called an officer or an inferior officer? Okay, well, I think to understand the Lucia decision, we have to go back to a 1991 Supreme Court decision called Freytag versus Commissioner. It wasn't until I read that decision that I began to understand where the court was going with what they considered an inferior officer. Freytag dealt with special trial judges appointed by the chief judge of the United States Tax Court. Um, In a challenge to a decision of one of those judges that their appointment was unconstitutional, it went up to the Supreme Court. And the court looked at whether or not the special trial judges constituted inferior officers. The key to their rationale was the duties and responsibilities of those special trial judges. So the court was noting the fact that they could develop an administrative or develop their trial record or an administrative record in the SEC case. The court notes that they have all the duties and functions of a effectively a trial judge. Uh, take evidence, credit rule on credibility of witnesses, issue orders and ultimately write a final written decision of some form, whether it's findings, recommendations, initial decision or whatever you call it, we decide to call it. And they said that makes them an inferior officer. In that case, though, uh, they were past constitutional muster because the chief judge of the tax court ahead of the um, judiciary department appointed them. Okay, so what was the difference, if there was one, between that case and Lucia? Uh, no difference. Okay. And that's why when you start putting the two together, um, the contours of where the court is going comes together. So the court between... Freytag and Lucia is saying that trial, tri- judicial trial type duties uh, make someone an inferior officer under the Constitution. Okay, and can you describe um, some of those considerations a little more in depth? So the type of duties the court was looking at or looks at are the the ability to regulate the course of the hearings, administer oaths and affirmations compel witnesses and production of evidence, and uh, finally uh, issue a written decision. Okay. Now, as we've discussed, the Lucia decision seems pretty narrow. It seems like it only applies to ALJs, specifically with the SEC. So how can that decision be more broadly applied? Uh, In the first instance, when you look at an administrative law judge and the prior appointment of them was through an OPM competitive process, and they were hired to do similar functions and similar titles at other agencies and still today hold a similar rank. It's hard to distinguish why a Securities and Exchange Commission ALJ is any different from a Department of Labor ALJ or a U.S. Postal Service ALJ. So the immediate implication was there. There's also the concern as well, if we uh, if you invalidate the decisions of one, does that mean decisions before other ALJs are now at risk of being overturned. The The other one that there's no distinction, and that's why I take the position that it has very broad implications, 
is since both were dealing with trial level duties of a judge, and I would also say there's other cases that this will also include appellate judges, anything with a judicial function, a quasi judicial function, um, the court is looking at saying that's an inferior officer. And then that one should be not employed based on a HR department and an employee and be an employee of the agency. They're a bit higher in the head of the agency or department should appoint them. So you mentioned uh, quasi-judicial functions. Has anything in particular stood out to you um, in that capacity? I think the bigger issue with Freytag, because the quasi-judicial functions is what I argue pulls us into the the ADRA and the issue of binding arbitration. In terms of what the real issue coming from Lucia, I see is when to raise the constitutional challenge. Freytag in a concurrence, the late Justice Antonin Scalia suggested that you would have to, you should have to raise it in the first instance with the trial court. So basically, this, the appellate courts and Supreme Court have the ability to sua sponte raise a constitutional issue such as one dealing with separation of powers under the appointments clause. And it, in those instances, would not have been raised at the trial level. So in Freytag, Justice Scalia advocates having some kind of standard in the appointments clause cases for raising that issue, not so much just court raising it on its own. Because when was the issue raised in Freytag? Freytag came up on appeal. Okay. And when it came to the Lucia, so the plaintiffs in Lucia knew what they were doing. This challenge clearly was going to be brought through the appellate courts because they raised the issue at the trial level with the ALJ, raised it to the Securities Exchange Commission on their own internal appeal process. They kept preserved it all with court. And in the majority opinion, the court makes painstakingly <laughs> um, detailed discussion of how this was preserved all along. Doesn't reach the discuss the issue itself or reach that, but their description of the posturing in my reading mirrors what Justice Scalia is saying in his in Freytag. And as we see it going through the courts now, some courts take the position that you have to raise it with the ALJ in the first instance. And some other ones, such as a recent case by the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, Arthrex Inc. versus Smith and Nephew Inc. Uh, decided October 31st, 2019. Federal Circuit did bring that one up uh, sua sponte on their own, and it was a challenge to administrative patent judges. And what happened in that case as far as um, bringing the issue through and through? That case dealt a little different than Lucia. These are appellate judges who ha- uh, dealing with um, patents. And in in that case, the court looked more toward are they you know, officers of the United States with requiring appointment by the Senate, you know, by the president with confirmation by the Senate. Okay. Now, earlier you mentioned um, that Lucia could be applied to the ADR Act and um, issues like that. And my understanding of the ADR Act is that it allows agencies to just use alternative methods to traditional litigation. So things like mediation and arbitration. 
So what caused the ADR Act to be implemented just from the get-go? Well, the Administrative Dispute Resolution Act is a way to sort of uh, streamline and make easier adjudication in the administrative tribunals so that you can use mediation to attempt to resolve cases. And mediation, uh, the media has no formal power in as much to like take evidence, uh, swear on witnesses under oath, uh, issue a decision. They facilitate discussions between the parties to try to come to a resolution. So we've been talking a lot about Lucia's implications on ALJs. How does Lucia apply in this world then? So what drew me is, uh, so ADR consists of mediation, binding arbitration, uh, mini trials is another form. It has different types you can use. And probably arbitration, whenever you say, I say anything, I'm an, an, I'm an administrative judge or I'm a mediator, people always seem to constantly draw back into, oh, so you do arbitration. Hmm. So it's on the public consciousness, it seems to be the most, um, the one with the most uh, awareness. So it is under the ADRA, while mediation is one part, it does carve out a um, it does carve out a place for binding arbitration. And binding arbitration means that when the parties select their neutral, and if they said, um, uh, Judge Maravia, you're going to be our neutral, but we don't want to do mediation, we want to do binding arbitration, uh, that transforms my role, and suddenly I am regulating the course of the arbitral hearing. I can t- administer oaths and affirmations. I can compel production of evidence. Uh, I can ultimately make an arbitration award, uh, sometimes in a written, sometimes even in a written decision. So I become a more formal, I have a more binding role on the parties at that point. And the issue begins to raise as you look at the duties of an arbitrator under the ADRA, which I just listed as some of them, uh, also other ones. Uh, an arbitral hearing, the parties um, can present evidence and cross-examine witnesses. The arbitrator receives oral and documentary evidence and may rule to a certain degree on the, uh, the admission of that evidence. And of course, more importantly, arbitrator uh, may, uh, may interpret and apply the statutory regulation requirements to the, uh, the issue at hand, to issue ruling. So the duties of the arbitrator, when we've listed them like that, we flip back to the duties of a trial judge at uh, the special tax, sorry, special trial judge at the tax court or a ALJ. They're identical. Okay, so it sounds like their positions can just be wide ranging and cover so many different aspects of arbitration, just depending on the situation, right? Correct. And okay. one of the things is that uh, I'm not the only one who is sort of questioned arbitration. So in the original version of the ADRA, which was passed in the very early 90s, this arbitration provision had an exception for a head of an agency or department to come in and and overturn an award or vacate an award. That the um, legislative record to that show, or legislative history to that shows there was some concern that it would run afoul of the appointments clause to have a sole arbitrator. 
that concern was lifted under revisions in the late 90s to ADRA, where bi full binding arbitration was authorized agencies. And that's where we are now. And one of the things, it's not just um, speculative on the these cases that we see before us. Uh, in the Association of American Railroads versus United States Department of Transportation, uh, the D.C. Circuit found a binding arbitration clause under the Passenger Rail Investment and Improvement Act of 2008 to be unconstitutional and um, violate uh, uh, in violation of the appointments clause. And that was actually that specific issue was hinted at by the Supreme Court when this case was on remand. So what implication does that case have on what you think um, arbitrators should be considered under the appointments clause? I think what ultimately it does is transform the role of an arbitrator, particularly I was saying the the court in the Federal Circuit in the Arthrex case, um, in that one, they were talking, taking it one step further and discussing the uh, the administrative judge's role as being greater than for your officer, being a full officer uh, subject to presidential appointment. And the things they were looking at were review power, supervision power, removal power to try to weigh whether or not the appeals judge uh, was an officer. They did hold that they were. But when you start looking at closer to an arbitrator, review power, an arbitrator's decision binding is final. It's not going to be reviewed by anyone else in the agency. The, um, the issue of supervision power, the arbitrator isn't supervised. They take the issues, take the record, and make a decision. And uh, I'm not going to go too much into removal power on, on them because we have a lot already from their basic authority. So as, as I see the trend, not only is arbitration running afoul of the appointments clause, just the appointment of the arbitrator themselves, they also potentially have a even higher appointments issue than an ALJ. And one of the things that this sort of goes to in my mind is when you're writing an article, sometimes you'll see a counter argument. And since well, it's my article, so maybe I just like <laughs> a gloss over my counter argument. But it sort of was begging the question of, so what happens if, and, and there are ALJs that you know can do arbitration, have arbitration authority, or uh, other administrative judges and forums that do arbitration for agencies. And so what happens if you are constitutionally appointed as an inferior officer under Lucia? Is there a problem? if you're then doing the arbitration because you have your appointment. And this case hints that, well, I run the risk that I have a Lucia appointment as an inferior officer, but when I take on the binding arbitration, start transforming my role and give myself more authority and less reviewability, then I may be turning myself into a full-blown officer, the subject to presidential appointment and vice and consent of the Senate. So I may actually move from a different part of the appointments clause to another part of the appointments clause. Okay, so it's my understanding that this issue has not been heard um, as to what arbitrators are considered by any court as of this point, right? I guess this is purely my academic okay. article, my own. Uh, it's one of the things that's fun about an academic article because you can take these take these issues, look at statutes, and 
and the rationales, the courts, and just see what the broader implications are. Yeah. So as of right now, is there anything that these positions are actually considered to be? Are they currently inferior officers or are they just employees? Um, so it is right now another tool in the in the world of um, ADR. Okay. So mediation is the primary method of ADR in the federal government, and mediators will never um, come close to these appointments clause issues because they have don't have authority. If I'm a mediator, um, I can persuade. I can give the parties a really good process. Uh, if they, if they want, if I have some if I happen to have some subject matter expertise in their in their issue, I can give a little bit of thoughts. But um, it's completely party driven, and I'm really a facilitator. Okay. The um, arbitration is under your tool set of ADR is just another form of ADR. Rather than going to, you know, court, you have an arbitrator come in and a method that is uh, generally more expeditious, a little faster, and has other implicate issues in terms of you know, uh, stare decisis and whether in the private sector whether those arbitration decisions are public or not. So it is just another tool set right now. And based on what you've told us today, do you see this issue being taken up anytime soon to kind of define this gray space of what uh, these positions should be considered? I think arbitration, like I said, it's another part of ADR. There's no real major challenges I've seen to the ADRA. And um, given the given that ADR is party-driven and parties enter... Uh, willingly to ADR and consent is an issue. Uh, I don't see parties necessarily consenting to an arbitration process that they ultimately will object to in the end. Right. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming and talking with us today. We have come to an end of this episode of A Hard Look. Uh, Judge Maravilla, we want to thank you again for being our guest. It's just been a pleasure speaking with you. Um, And thank you also to the School of Communication and Professor Jill Olmsted at American University. And of course, Jason Chun, our administrative law um, technical editor. We hope you can join us again on our next episode as we dive into another topic of administrative law. Thank you.